Our scripture reading this evening comes from Psalm 35, so if you would rise as we read God's word together, you can find it on page 464 in your pew Bibles. Psalm 35, this is the word of our God. Of David, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my life. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him, who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up, They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother, as one who laments his mother. I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction, my precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those Wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord." Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, aha, our hearts desire. Let them not say, we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Let us pray together. Our God and our Father, we do give you thanks for your word, even this word. And we would often say, it seems not clear But what we must admit, your word is clear. It is our sin that fogs our eyes and our heart's understanding of it. And so we would ask, Lord Jesus, would you remove such a barrier that we, in fact, would see Jesus 
and understand your word. And we ask it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. When we were reading, perhaps you began to understand the weight of this psalm. And many people say such things, right? The psalms are my favorite. And I'm quite certain this has never broken the top five list. And it's because of what it talks about, isn't it? You read it and you go, how? How can this be a part of the canon? How can this be a part of your word? In fact, if you opened your hymnal, you would go through song to song and what you would find is many of the Psalms are cited. What you will never find is often, I tried as far as I could, as many hymnals as I could find, this Psalm is never cited in a song. And it's because we're wondering how can anyone say such things? How can one pray such things? This is what we would call an imprecatory psalm, a psalm of judgment. Specifically, it is the judgment of God. Now, before we get too much into the text, I want to provide somewhat of a framework for you. How do we evaluate and consider such words? You noticed in the very beginning, this is a psalm of David. Can he say what he just said? Are there moments in your own life in which you can pray such things? Well, let me help you understand. This is David who wrote it. What do you know about the character of David, the great psalm writer? Is he one who takes personal vengeance upon his enemies? No. You know David well. He's the one who wrote Psalm 51, the great confession of his own sin. He wrote Psalm 32, in which he also acknowledges he is a sinner before the Lord and is in need of forgiveness. This is the same David who was on the run knowing that he has a promise from God to be king, and yet Saul is trying to destroy him. And many of times, he is at a hand's length away from Saul and could destroy him, and yet he does not. It is that man who wrote this psalm. But you and I must note something. He's not praying this psalm as a personal or private citizen. He's doing so as a king. He's going on behalf of his people, those in which he represents. He is not giving his personal preference of what he would like to happen because it would go well with his life. He's praying as the king of Israel, the king of God's people, recognizing that God has provided a promise for him. He's praying such things against those who oppose God and godliness and so as we look at this psalm, I want you to understand this is not an angry, grumpy old man saying such things. This is a king who looks out on an enemy and recognizes they have a direct opposition against God and against his promise. And what he does is he provides these two scenes, if you will. These images, he gives us a, a picture of a battlefield We'll look at that together. He gives us a picture of a courtroom. 
And then lastly, we'll talk about the podium. Who is it that he has such confidence in? Who is his victor or champion? Well, look with me in these first few verses of Psalm 35, this battlefield. What is David's view of God? He says, contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. How does David view God? He views him in a way the church often is unwilling to consider. What is he saying about God? God, I want you to fight. I want you to get into the war and to the battle. I want you to help. I want you to fight for your people. It's, a, it's an understanding that God is a, a warrior. And this is not a new theme for David. He tried to tell you about that, didn't he? In that beloved psalm that we love to think about in Psalm 23, we have these imageries of, oh, this is a peaceful psalm. And yet what does David call God there? He calls him the shepherd. And you and I have been fooled by our world's understanding of a shepherd as to say, that is a weak, passive man who only knows how to pet cute animals. That is not a shepherd. A shepherd is a warrior with a club ready and willing to fight for the life of those whom they protect. And so David, recognizing God as this shepherd, says, fight. Fight for your people. Fight on behalf of your promise. The shepherd God leads and protects his people. It's a powerful imagery. Maybe you like movies. You might be a history buff. Some of you are history buffs and you like to read about it. I'm a history buff and I like to watch about it. I like to watch the movies about history more than I do read them. Not because, well, it just takes more work to read, doesn't it? And it's quite simple to just have the, them read it for you in a, in a very entertaining fashion. There's a wonderful movie. It was made in 2002. It was about the Vietnam War. Mel Gibson, we were soldiers. Perhaps you've seen it. There's this scene relatively early on in the movie. It's a very powerful scene. The men are being called. They are going to be sent over. It's very early in the war. And he's standing on a podium. That is Mel Gibson. He's, he's about to lead his men. And there they are. They're just sitting out in front of him. And behind him are the wives and the children and the parents. And he's trying to instruct them. And he wants them to understand, this is what we're about to do. If you want to understand home and what it's supposed to be, this is what we're going to do, men. And what he looks out and he says, it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter your creed. We are going to be one man overseas. And we're going to fight. We're entering into a battle. And the enemy is determined. And then he makes this powerful statement. Looking at them says, I cannot promise you, you will all come home alive. But I can promise you before the Lord God Almighty that I will be the first off and the last on. And whether you are dead or alive, you will come home. He's readying the troops for the battle. He is prepared to fight 
to lead in front and to come behind. And here's David saying the same thing. God, fight for your people. Fight against those who oppose you and oppose your word. It's very different than what we think about God, isn't it? You have a world that says, well, God must be good, but not powerful. Or perhaps he's powerful and he's not good. You see, the church has learned from that and the church would not say that. We have tried to glamorize that. How does the church say such things? God is love. God in the Old Testament was angry. But in the New Testament, he is love. Jesus is peace. Friends, if that's your view of God, you know not the God of the Bible. Jesus is our peace, and he bought peace by fighting with his very life. It is not simply that God is love. He is also holy, and he does not sacrifice his holiness, his righteousness, his judgment for the sake of his love. They are all married in one being, and that is God himself. And so David, understanding this picture, says, God, fight. Fight for your people. And look at the imagery that he says, draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Be prepared to go to war. There's a man by the name of John Rabbi Duncan, as some people would know him. On one occasion, he was before the Privy Council in Scotland, and they brought him in, and he was to pray at the end of their meeting. One challenge for him was the fact that they used to hold their meetings on the Lord's Day, later on in the afternoon. And so as the meeting finished, John Duncan prayed this, O Lord, bless our sinful, godless, Sabbath-breaking privy council. Thou knowest that thou art not honored there, for they profane thy holy day by their meeting for state business. Now maybe you're saying, that's just a good illustration. He didn't really say that. Oh, friends, but he did. And the reason why that prayer makes us uncomfortable is because our attention immediately goes to the man across the table. What were they feeling? What were they like? And what we have failed to think is, well, who is God? The creator of the heavens and the earth and who put these people in power. We give our attention to a man instead of God. And so John Duncan was simply saying, if we had our eyes fixated on that God, we would never do such a thing. When we have a right view of God, we have a right view of the world and how to handle such battles. And this is what David is praying. He recognizes there's an enemy. It's seeking to destroy him. It's a battlefield. He uses these imageries of what's the pursuit after a wild animal what it means to trap one. He talks about digging a pit for his life, hiding a net for me. And so what does David say? He offers a, a statement of what he wants to be done, almost a poetic justice. 
Those who sought to destroy me, may they be destroyed. Those who lied against me, may they be cheated. Those who schemed against me, may they be deceived. Those who seek after me with such violence, may they be dealt with violently. He's essentially saying, Lord, fight that they might self-destruct. Bring about your promise. There's a battlefield David is showing us. And then he gives us a different scene, a different picture that is a, of a courtroom. He begins the psalm with contend. That is a legal term. That is the, the understanding of an attorney making a plea on behalf of their client. And David is saying, Lord, I need you to make a plea for me. I, in this courtroom, I need you to be my ambassador, my representative. Some people would read this psalm and say, maybe there's multiple enemies. I don't think that's what David has in mind. I think he has one enemy, one in which he is describing, and he's talking about different schemes. One was a violent attack, and now we're scheming against slander. We're going we're gonna to lie. We're going to deceive people. We're going to break uh, our promise, our word. And so they're going against him. I don't think he's trying to provide a metaphor. I think he's speaking quite literally. I think he's saying, they're trying to defame me. They want to dethrone me. They want people to have a different view of me. They want to distort the truth. Now, of course, there's no record in this time of someone bringing a court case against a king. And I'm not suggesting that. What I'm suggesting is perhaps there was a treaty that was broken because do you see how David thinks about this enemy? Look at how he describes them. He says in verse 11, malicious witnesses rise up, but he has a different view of himself in connection with them, doesn't he? But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. David is greatly troubled. He's saying, I treated them with kindness and with grace. Where is this mistreatment coming from? How am I being betrayed? Why have they gone against me? I've prayed for them. That's what he's getting at in verse 13 when he says, I prayed with head bowed on my chest. It's this idea in which they kept coming back in his prayers. They kept coming back to mind and he could not help but continue to pray for them over and over and over again. It almost causes us to pause, doesn't it? How is it that we treat our enemies. David has a picture of them. He says, I've done everything I can to care for them. I'm innocent. I, I've tried to love them. How do we treat our enemies? You see, the church rightfully stands against abortion, rightfully stands against it. But what does the word of God tell you? You should do that. 
but if you hate your brother in your heart, you've murdered him. We take this stance against life here, but do we have the same innocence when we consider the man or the woman next to us? Or perhaps we say there are people dying for their faith all throughout the world. God, bring about justice on their life. Save those. And we should do that. But do you have the same mindset about the sin of partiality in our own community or in your own hearts? David is saying, I'm innocent. I have done all that I can to care for them. He's not claiming an entire moral innocence. What he is saying is, what they're accusing me of, I have not done. I do not know what they speak of. It's not me. I did not do those things. And so he calls on God. And what does he say? Well, vindicate me. Vindicate me. Come to my aid. Don't let them rejoice over me. In fact, he says that three times. Do not let them rejoice over me. Be the judge. Pay attention to the case and judge rightly. Judge me rightly. Judge them rightly. Do not let them rejoice over me. And it's almost as though he has this thought that maybe they're gaining an edge. That's what he's talking about in 15 and 16. It, it's, he has fallen and, and there's this sense that they're rejoicing now. And he's saying, don't let it happen. Come, Lord, fight. Fight for me. Do not let them have the last word. Deliver me. You see, David's not giving this prayer as I had a bad day at work or my neighbor left me a nasty letter in my mailbox, or you got a bad email. He's not praying a personal vengeance deliverance here. He's saying there's something far greater that's at stake. He's saying, Lord, you've promised something. Be true to your word. Stand up for your people. Do not let evil in this world take over that which is good, that which is your kingdom. And so he says, fight, fight. But then there's this oddity, isn't it, when you're reading. He finishes these images, and at the end of each one of them, what is he doing? He's praising the Lord. He's promising to praise the Lord. How can David... How can David write such a, a clear psalm of judgment with such confidence that God, in fact, would do it? That God would fight? That God would come to his aid and deliver and vindicate him? It's because he knows who wins. He knows who the victory is found in. He knows who is on the top of the podium at the end of the day. And it is not the enemy in which he's looking at. There's this rhetorical question that he puts in there for us. And it ought to just stop us and make us reflect for quite some time. Look at what he says in verse 10. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? The, the idea of all my bones, he's saying, with everything I've got, there's no part of me that cannot ask this question. And what does he say? O Lord, who is like you? 
And you understand the rhetorical nature of that because what is he saying? There's nobody. No one is like our God. And that is the pattern of the scriptures, isn't it? You find that question or a variation of it. Sometimes it's even in a statement. You can find it in Jeremiah. You can find it in Isaiah. You can find it multiple times in the Psalms. And you can see these statements. Who is like you, O Lord? There is none like you. No one is like our God. Our God is the one true God. And he's saying over and over and over, our God is incomparable. You cannot find an enemy who can stand against our God. It gives you hope to worship. It wakes you up in the morning. There is no trial that you will face in which God is stressed and worried. There's nobody who can compare to our God. And the scriptures over and over are trying to make that clear. There's no gods like our God. There are no things, materialistic things like our God. There are no circumstances that can compare to our God. There's no earthly authority or power that can compare to our God. He's greater in might. He's greater in power. He's greater in wisdom. He's greater in grace. He's greater in promise. And in fact, he's even greater in deliverance. Nobody is like our God. And David is over and over trying to remind himself, that is who made this promise to me. No one compares to our God. And so he asks this rhetorical question and he answers it in a fantastic way. Oh Lord, who is like you? Delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him. The poor and needy from him who robs him. Nobody is like our God. And instead of doing something with self-interest, he says, our God doesn't even have to consider his self-interest. He cares for the poor and the needy. He cares for the smallest among us, not just the mightiest. Nobody compares with our God. It's that picture Paul talks about when we were powerless. Christ made us alive. No one compares. He's incomparable. And so David can say, I know where the victory is found. He also provides another reason of confidence. Why else can I have confidence that the victory is in the hands of the Lord? Because God is faithful to his promises. God is faithful to his promises. And you're reading Psalm 35 and you're saying, I'm not sure I saw that promise. Where is that promise in Psalm 35? Look in verse 17. Your English translation doesn't help you here at all. Look in verse 17. What does David say? How long, O Lord, will you look on, rescue me from their destruction, my precious life, from the lions. That phrase, my precious life. Do you know what the Hebrew is there? I won't pronounce it for you because I am married to one who's taking Hebrew so she could actually accuse me of mispronouncing it. That Hebrew word there is the idea of precious, of ultimate value, the preciousness of a child. And you can imagine where might that Hebrew word show up? Genesis chapter 22, 
when God looked at Abraham and said, take your son, your only son. Same Hebrew word. Your only son and precious. It's the same word. Does David have a high view of himself? Is it, oh, I'm so important. Look at me. My life is so valuable. I don't think that's what he's doing. I think he's doing the same thing Abraham is doing. Abraham is saying to God, God, you made me a promise. And he's right here. Here's the fulfillment of it. You promised this. Why would you call me to do something different? And yet he trusts God. David has a similar promise. God, you made a promise. It's not that my life is so precious, but it is the one in which will come from my life, my lineage. That is Christ himself. David can praise the Lord over and over in this psalm because he knows who wins. He knows where the victory is found. He understands that the ultimate fighter is in fact Christ himself. He has this bold request of the Lord of, God, I I want you to do something. That's what he's saying over and over. Here's the battle plan. I want you to do something. Here's the courtroom. I want you to do something. And he even says who he wants to do it. Did you see that phrase in verse five and six? Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing him. That phrase, the angel of the Lord, it, it only shows up twice in the Psalms. Right here and in, and in verse seven of Psalm 34. Is David saying, send an angel and he will do. I don't think so. That is not the biblical pattern of that phrase, angel of the Lord. You go back early on into Genesis and into Genesis 16, and what do you find? You, you have Hagar, she's on the run. Sarah and her, they didn't so much agree about the child thing, and so she leaves. And what does she say? The angel of the Lord saw her. It is the God who sees me, she says in Genesis 16. Genesis 22, that is Abraham and Isaac, Who stops Abraham? It's the angel of the Lord. In Genesis 18, if you back up, what's going on there? Three men appear. Two seem to be just angels, but one of them is referred over and over as the Lord. Exodus chapter three, that is the burning bush. Who's there? It's the angel of the Lord. What do you learn about in Joshua? It's the angel of the Lord, the commander of the Lord's army. What have you understood that phrase to mean in every one of those passages? It's a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. If that was fancy jargon, let me help you understand. It means Jesus. Jesus. And do you know what you will not see in the New Testament? You will not find the angel of the Lord. Anywhere. That phrase that you see in Matthew and Luke when it says the angel of the Lord, if you just Googled Bible Gateway, you didn't read the chapter. When it says the angel of the Lord, you go back a couple of verses and it says it was Gabriel. It actually gives you the name. It's referring to an angel that was already there and has already done something. You will never find the phrase the angel of the Lord. 
And in fact, if you were assuming to find that phrase based on the Old Testament pattern, where would you think it would show up? Maybe at Stephen's sermon that we've been talking about. Maybe when Saul was on the road to Damascus. Maybe with John's vision in Revelation. But in every situation, who is there? It's Jesus. It's Jesus over and over and over again. Why can David be so confident? Because he knows the effectual nature of God, of Jesus. He is the Lord. He knows the angel of the Lord is God himself. He cannot be thwarted. He cannot be defeated. It's why when you read these Psalms, you you say to yourself, this is not emotionally charged old men saying things. This is not old Jewish people in their time and history saying things. It's the Prince of Peace. There's a divine author behind this. These are the prayers of Christ. And he can pray such because he's been promised by God. Your enemies will become your footstool. And so Jesus prays such prayers and it helps you and I to understand such an application. How can we pray such things? And it's because we have the Prince of Peace who prays it on our behalf, who prayed for us. And it gives us confidence because this king's prayer will be answered. It gives us confidence. This king's prayer will be answered. It does need to provide comfort for some of you, but some of you it should provide a warning. Because what does Jesus tell his disciples? When I return, I'm not coming to bring peace. I'm bringing the sword. John gives you a picture of that, doesn't he, in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It is not to dismiss David's prayer, but it is to provide for his people the greatest fulfillment, and that is Christ. He will defeat the enemy, your enemy, sin, death, the evil one. And that is what provides for us such confidence. But we also have to know the context in which we live. We live at war. There is a determined enemy There is a constant battle, and this is meant to tell you there is no time for idleness. You're at war. We want to be a a church, a battalion of truth, a local body of truth that says we have a mission, and it is to take ground, the kingdom of light, ground, 
We want to go against the kingdom of darkness. You are a soldier in the army of the Lord. And with that mindset, it's what Paul tells Timothy, isn't it? What do soldiers act like? They do whatever it takes. They want to please their commanding officer. They do not get involved with civilian affairs because they're clear on the mission. The church is at war. You should be excited about it because you know who leads. He's the first off and the last on because he leads his church. He is the head of the church and that is Christ. I think it's why David has that picture in verse three when he's calling on God to fight. And what does David say? God, as you're going through the armies, as you're taking ground, whisper something to me. Tell me, I am your salvation. What a chant. When the battle is hard, we don't know what to do. We're unclear at times of the enemy. God, whisper to my soul. I am your salvation. That is the great picture of what Paul says. I'll close with the reading of his letter to First Corinthians or to Corinthians in First Corinthians 15. He says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's why you sing that song. Death has lost its sting. Because you and I, we have a returning king. And he will defeat not only death, sin, and the evil one. And he will rescue all of his people to himself for all eternity. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, faithful warrior, we give to you our thanks, our promise of praise as we've seen with David because you are the one who fights for us. You are the one who fought on our behalf and lost your life that we might in fact live. And so we give to you thanks that as the song goes, the victory is in Jesus. And yet we pray, O oh Lord, that you might, in fact, give to us courage to fight this fight of faith, that we would recognize the war that is before us, not one that we win on our own, but one in which we walk because we have the great cloud of witnesses, the one who has gone before us, the, the true king of kings on our side, Christ. And yet, O oh God, in the same breath as we have confidence and courage, we pray Help those amongst us who do not know Christ hear such a warning. For there is a judgment to come that none will escape. But may they find themselves in Christ Jesus and have life and life 
to the full. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.